0: Welcome to the Cambridge Assessment Podcast. I'm Ashley Capaldi, and I'm here to introduce a special three-part series, guest-hosted by Paul Ellis and Melanie Dunn. According to the UN Refugee Agency, there are currently four million refugee children out of school. One of the UN's sustainable development goals is to ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and promote lifelong learning opportunities for all. In this second episode, we hear from Lee Benbao, Peter Johnston and Sol Escobar from our Refugee Support Committee, who have taken their refugee support efforts outside of the workplace and into the refugee camps of Europe.
1: In the second of our podcasts in this series, we are talking to three of our colleagues from Cambridge Assessment who have been volunteering their time to help with refugee charities in Calais. In this podcast, Sol, Peter and Lee are going to tell us more about their experiences. First of all, though, let's meet them, starting with Sol. Do you want to introduce yeah, hi. yourself? Um,
2: hi. <laughs> I'm Sol, and I work in the uh, in assessment in Cambridge International in the languages group.
1: Thank you.
3: Lee? Hi, I'm Lee. I work in Cambridge International as well in the assessment group as an analyst.
4: Thank you. I'm Peter. Hi, Paul. Well, yes, yeah, so I'm Peter Johnston. I also work
1: for Cambridge International as an English assessment manager. Excellent, thank you very much, welcome to the podcast. First question, very basic, straightforward question, but it might have a complex answer. How did you become involved with volunteering in Calais? Lee, how did you become involved?
3: So actually, I attended a lunchtime workshop that Seoul had arranged. I had recently joined Cambridge Assessment. Um, I was looking for um, a way to kind of meet new people and to use my time positively. So I went along to the session that Seoul had arranged, um, heard about the convoy to Calais and, yeah, kind of signed up pretty much within the week to, to drive down there, which was um, a bit of a challenge. My first
1: time driving on the wrong side of the road, but it was uh, <laughs> great fun. Yeah. You, you live to tell the tale, then, anyway, yes. <laughs> Great. And you, Pete, what's
4: he Well, so Sol and I were both looking for a way to get involved in doing something. And so we looked around for what charities there are in in Cambridge and able to do that. And Cam Craig was the charity that we worked with. Mm -hmm. That's the Cambridge Convoy Refugee Action Group. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, they just made it very, very easy in the way that Lee describes there. So the idea that he had the notion to do it and then a week later was doing it. That's pretty similar to our experience
1: as well, I think.
2: Fantastic.
1: Yeah. So, so you're instrumental in this, obviously.
2: Um, I guess, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, so basically, um, as Pete said, um, we were looking for, for something to do and we wanted um, to volunteer with a charity in Cambridge. We started looking and Googling and we came across uh, this charity that organizes trips down to Calais with a group of people. We thought that would be a great way to start Mm. volunteering because, you know, as Pete said, they do make it very easy. You Mm. sign up, they assign you to a car, um, you go on Friday after work, come back on Sunday, spend two days in Calais doing whatever needs to be done, basically. Um, And after going down there the first time, after coming back, um, it was... It made such an impact on me going down there and seeing with my own eyes what was happening, which was nothing like what you read on the media. Um, And so when I came back, when we came back, um, Mm. we decided to tell people about it at work. Um, And so we arranged, as Lee said, a lunchtime chat, I would say. Um, And yes, we put it in the internal media, social media pages that we have, Yama uh, and we invited colleagues and about 20 people came, mm. one of which was Lee um, and uh, other People that came to, to this t- chat as well were, are now part of our refugee support committee. Um, and yeah, basically, we just talked about our experience going down there and how people could get involved. And some people did. Mm-hmm. It was great. Mm-hmm. And Peter, what's the situation now in Calais? Because the uh, jungle was dismantled uh, back mm-hmm. in 2016. Mm-hmm. So who are the refugees?
4: OK, so it's, it's people from any place really where they need to flee conflict or persecution or anything like that. So people from places like Eritrea or South Sudan or Afghanistan, Syria, the general groups. But So whereas when the jungle was going up until 2016, as you say, um, it was all in one place. Now they're dispersed across parts of Calais and Dunkirk in the forests, uh, under bridges, behind industrial buildings, uh, places like that for the most part.
2: Yes, and basically the only support that they get is are the charities down there and the volunteers mm. that go there. Um, so there are long-term volunteers that can stay um, from a few weeks to months and that uh, help the most there. And then there are groups of volunteers, like, for example, this convoy group that gets together 20, 25 people, sometimes 30, uh, and we go for a weekend to sort of relieve the long-term volunteer so that they can take a break Mm because their work is very intense and so we go down there we sort um donations we cook thousands of meals we distribute food we do what needs to be done Mm. and do you have any idea how many refugees are there at any time
3: i think uh last time we went down they were performing a kind of a a mini census and they said around 2000 if i'm Correct Is that. Certainly the census
4: that was done last year, it was 1,300, so if it's gone up to about mm. 2,000 now, then it's increasing. Yeah. It, w- it was about 8,000 at the peak of the jungle, so that's three years ago. Um, of course, it's a bit more difficult to,
2: to, count, to perform to, a to, census to, yeah, when exactly. people are so
4: dispersed now. Um, yeah. And of course, there's a, quite a lot of uh, institutional reaction against it, governmental yeah. ins- in initiatives to get rid of the people that are there. So, yeah, the dispersion is wider than you might think from those mm. numbers, yeah.
3: I think another thing is the diversity of people down there, I think there's Mm -hmm. roughly around 20 different nationalities all sort of living in very challenging conditions and that Mm -hmm. that sort of brings its own problems um, sort of within the refugee community because you're you know effectively kind of living out um, in tents with people that uh, you sort of didn't grow up with, they have different values from your own and Um, that can maybe cause tensions down there so.
2: Yeah, and to add to that as well, they have a lot of resistance from police, and they, you know, they face police brutality every week and mm-hmm. have everything taken away from them. And so, for example, when we go to volunteer there, um, the, every morning there's a briefing where the long-term volunteers that have been out in the field the night before will will give an update of what the situation is. So they will say which locations have been targeted, which communities need more support on that day so we will get everything ready to take tents to those who had their tents taken away kind of thing um so yeah so this is something that happens almost on a daily basis so
4: a lot of the purpose of us being there is to replenish those things that have been taken away by the authorities Mm -hmm. which it sounds absurd um but yeah (laughs) as as an enterprise but it's but it needs to be done
1: doesn't it yeah Yeah. can you give us a picture of what you see when you arrive in cali
3: yeah, so, um, <laughs> it, well, I guess um, first impressions coming off the, off the Eurotunnel is a lot of fences, um, huge fences, um, large concrete walls sort of everywhere around the port. Um, and then you drive sort of into Calais, and it's kind of just a, a fairly normal seaside type of town. Like yeah, Calais
2: is the- actually a really beautiful city. Once yeah. <laughs> you
3: get to, and when Lee mentions yeah. the fences and the walls,
4: it's not just that it's a straight... You know, Mm -hmm. system of walls and fences. It's it's this labyrinth. um, The difficulty of getting through there on youth your first time. Yeah, I think quite difficult, as I'm sure everybody does. Yeah, find their way through to where you end up, which is the quaint seaside
3: town of Calais. Yeah, yeah. 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 And and then going from uh, so when we arrive there, we stay in a youth hostel, um, and then when we go on the day to the to the warehouse, it's uh, kind of like out in. an industrial park area so there's a few different warehouses down the road it's very quiet um so you drive in it's uh, the warehouse itself is gated um there's a barrier there to obviously control people entering the site so uh, they're very conscious of security on the site so that all of the volunteers there have a safe atmosphere where they can you know do what needs to be done for the refugees that day and yeah the kind of the warehouse itself is a as, as you would imagine, it's a large warehouse. There's um, there's a bit of sort of outside scrublands. There's sort of uh, obvious things, like if with a kitchen, there's a load of waste. The waste from the kitchen goes back to the local farmers that often donate a lot of the food. Yeah. So um, yeah, there's kind yeah. of...
2: Yeah, it's worth mentioning, I think, that um, the type of the the volunteering that we do with this particular group, and there are many charities that Mm -hmm. work down there, so um, we support a few particular ones. So Help Refugees UK, we support Refugee Community Kitchen, uh, Utopia 56, all of these um, are all together on the same site Mm -hmm. and volunteers go to this site that we're not dispersed around the city. Um, So basically most volunteers we work all together, either sorting donations or cooking or uh, chopping wood or fixing tents, etc. Normally it's the long-term volunteers that do the distribution of these goods because you need to have some sort of training to um, deal in these situations um, with the people on the ground. So um, after a few times having been there, um, for example, I went to distribute food, but we had quite a an extensive briefing beforehand mm-hmm. to explain the situation, what uh, where people come from, how to you know, how to behave, what to expect. Um, uh, The first time, I I went to distribute food a couple of times, but the first time, one of the things that hit me the most that one of the long-term volunteers organising it said was, you know, just look at them in the eyes and smile Mm -hmm. and say hi Mm -hmm. and ask them what they want to eat, you Mm -hmm. know, give them some sort of agency to choose what they want. Mm -hmm. Um, And it makes such a difference Um, just talking to people um, and... You know, hearing their story. Sometimes they just wanna come and have have a chat and mm-hmm. we sit down with them and have some food at the end when we're done distributing food and they just wanna they just wanna talk. Mm.
4: Yeah, so I mean as Sol says, most people that go there for the first time probably won't go out on this. No, exactly. But yeah. so just to add to what Lee was saying before about what the warehouse is like, so I suppose the first thing that does strike you when you get there at nine AM on the Saturday, having stayed at the youth hostel the night before, is bleary-eyed people, all ages, ready for a hard, another hard day of work. Many of them have been doing it for a long time, but just this real sense of community that's there amongst all these different groups, all different nationalities. just amazing, really. You do this big warm-up, a um, few games at the start. sort of starts to sound a little bit cheesy, perhaps, but it, is, <laughs> but, it but there is a real sense of, of community and fun and working towards a, a common goal and all that kind of thing. And then you enter into the warehouse, and it's this huge, colourful place with... You know, it's they've tidied it up the best they can from the day before, <laughs> but it's a place of work, really, mm-hmm. yeah. um, where there's a kitchen run by these really competent, you know,
2: chefs and just,
4: just yeah,
2: yeah, and it's great. And there's loud music, and everyone is having fun, actually. Yeah, definitely. There, um, yeah.
4: there, there's a really fun atmosphere. In it's there, as it's much great. As else. Yeah, yeah.
2: And why is it that the police would dismantle the tents and so forth, and as you said, they dismantled the jungle, but they allow the charities to operate there?
3: I think it's a sort of a complex question there's from my understanding the sort of the french government are trying to create hostile environment down there towards refugees to try and discourage people from um, going to calais um, but at the other side there is basic human rights and you know Uh, The charities down there legally are allowed to distribute um, clothes, food, um, essential items to the refugees. So there certainly does seem to be like a a conflict between, um, on the one hand, the government is acting in one way to um, try and sort of discourage refugees from being in Calais, but then at the same time, you know, they're human beings and. They have yeah, what is rights the like everyone else.
2: If no one, if, if the volunteers weren't there and if the charities weren't there to to help them out, there would be nothing. It's really just um, sort of
4: a kind of a perverse grey area, yeah. the legalities around it. Yeah, in that, uh, as Lee says and Stoltz says too, this they do have responsibilities, but they won't go beyond those responsibilities, and in fact they'll make it such that. Um, whilst still fulfilling those responsibilities they'll do everything they can to stop people making them do so um and and that's it really
2: yeah so there there are um not not with volunteers going there just for the weekend because it's a very safe environment but uh talking to the more long-term volunteers um that there have been issues with police harassment of volunteers as well so it, it is. Uh, They are trying to make a hostile environment for both refugees but also for volunteers.
4: You probably will have seen that there was a court case recently in in France uh, which came to a conclusion in June where because of some of this hostility that's been going on they now have to provide uh, showers and toilets and what's the other thing?
2: No, I can't remember. Showers
4: and toilets and water, that's Mm. it, um, to the refugees. So whilst they still can carry on with these same attitudes, there's a basic level of humanity they do have to provide
1: legally now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What sort of stories have you heard from the refugees that you've spoken to? They're both about what they've been through and what they're hoping to do next.
2: Um, so I've talked to um, different groups of, of refugees in the times that I've been distributing food. Um, I personally didn't get a chance to talk very extensively with them, but, but the, the stories that I did hear, um, especially the last time that I was there, and distributing food um there were quite a few people that had been deported back that had spent a number of years in either Germany or the UK had started um, their new lives and they in, in they had their asylum uh, claim renewal uh, denied and they were back where they had started and um you could obviously tell the the disappointment and the sadness that they had. Um, but there's there's such a variety of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they all have the commonality of fleeing, conflict, persecution, um, etc. But in the journeys that we have listened to and especially also those who came to talk during the refugee week who talked about their, their journey in great detail, um, I think a lot of people are not actually aware what really goes on so I do recommend to anyone listening to this who wants to know more to also listen to that, that talk that we have available
1: hmm.
3: I think um, in Calais in particular it's a place where um, refugees kind of end up and it's very much kind of a, a, a an end of the line and they can often be sort of um, like political hot potatoes in a way in that they want to go to certain countries, to, to the UK, um, for people in Calais, but um, they tend to be more problematic cases where, um, as Sol mentioned, um, speaking about people that have had sort of asylum um, rejected, I think with the, the sort of the, the EU legislation of the first safe country that a refugee arrives in, they should be granted um, granted the right to stay there But for a lot of them, that's, you know, the first place that they arrive in is not necessarily the place they're they're kind of the destination that they want to Mm -hmm. to be in for whatever reason. Maybe Mm -hmm. they've got family over in the UK. So Mm -hmm. I think quite often people can um, be in uh, quite a sort of a a state of last resort when you're in Calais. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously, you hear infrequently on the news um, of crossings, attempts that ultimately go wrong because they are kind of at that that stage, the, the kind of really end-of-the-line type, yeah. type place. So, sort of
4: geographically, we, we are the natural end point for people whose hope's been drained away from them. Mm-hmm. Somehow, at this point in our history, we still represent that hope for them. And mm-hmm. this place in particular, well, it, it hopefully reinforces some of that. And if we can get the political will behind that too, then maybe that's going to keep that hope going, I guess, for people yeah. who don't have very much of it left. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting to note as well when we were talking to um, some of the uh, the refugees that came to this talk, um, th- how they explained uh, this whole notion and argument that why don't they stay in the first country, in the first safe country they go to. Um, but that first safe country might, you know, be... Uh, have already welcomed four million refugees or Mm -hmm. you know they don't have a way of to work or to have papers or they're in limbo and living in refugee camps in Greece or Turkey for years so of course, they're going to continue their journey. I mean, I, I am from South America. I never escaped um, persecution, and I didn't stay in the first country that I went to. I kept going until I found my home, and my home was here. And no one ever asked me why I didn't stay in the first country I came across. Um, so obviously, you know, as um, Abdulaziz and mayor said, when we talked to them um, at the panels talk um they just want an education they want to work they want to be with their families they want to be safe but they also want a life mm-hmm. and a life is not always in the first country where you're not being chased yeah. you know uh, so yeah that's that's where they get to um mm-hmm. when they're in calais trying to to reach that goal mm-hmm. and if anyone wants to find out more about how to help where should they go to
3: um i think Cam Crag would be a great place, um, especially for people local to Cambridge.
2: Yes, uh, just for those who don't know what Cam Crag means, <laughs> it's the Cambridge Refugee, uh, Cambridge Convoy Refugee Action Group. Um, they're a great charity um, in Cambridge for anyone who's local
4: and more, more widely help refugees probably would be yeah. the best place to yeah. do Yeah. Help
2: this. refugees UK. They do have a lot of initiatives, not only in Northern France. Um, they do sort of oversee this, um, warehouse that we go to help out. Um, refugee community kitchen. They do deliver food. Uh, they, they're in London as well as mm-hmm. Northern France and help refugees UK. They also work in Greece and Lebanon. Mm-hmm. So you can, um, you can volunteer in other countries if you want to. There are a lot of um, charities that are doing some amazing work mm-hmm. where governments are not.
1: And for those of you who aren't in the UK area, there's other opportunities elsewhere. If you go through the various UN, UN agencies as well, there's mm-hmm. of opportunities. Yeah, there's
2: a lot of information website, out yeah. there. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much for telling us about your experiences, and you'll be back there at some point soon, will you, is that your plan? September is the In next September. Next
2: yeah, next we're okay. thinking maybe, maybe we'll organise <laughs> another one during the summer. Okay. Um, the summer, there are a lot of people who are available, so mm-hmm. there are a lot of refi- uh, refugees, so a lot of uh, um, volunteers. volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um, so this particular charity we volunteer with, they try to um, take people at the times when... volunteers are low Mm -hmm. so um yeah so we might go this summer otherwise in september Mm -hmm. we'll see we just went actually before refugee week we were there Mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago yeah excellent
1: well thank you very much again thank Thank you you.
0: thank Thank you thank you for listening to the cambridge assessment podcast you can find more on our website at www.cambridgeassessment.org.uk just search for podcast gallery We're also on YouTube and iTunes. Leave us a comment wherever you're listening if you'd like to get in touch about any of our refugee support projects and we'll get back to you.